seated. We can turn with me in your Bibles to the prophet Joel chapter 2, a passage perhaps we all know well, quoted in Acts chapter 2. Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. Uh, we'll read those verses, and I'll begin reading at verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. It shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Before in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our great God, we are thankful for the way to flee the wrath to come. And we are thankful that we are the survivors, we are the escapees, and we are thankful that we have escaped in the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that without him, we know that we deserved everlasting destruction, and that day of judgment would have been a day of great terror. But we are thankful for Christ Jesus, who bore uh, your wrath in himself, that we do not need to fear that day. Thank you that that day... Uh, is a day of passage, that day is a day of rejoicing, that day is a day of excitement, uh, as the new heavens and new earth shall be ushered in on that day. And so we are thankful. We do not need to fear that day. And we're thankful that we called upon you, but we know, O oh Lord, that you first called us. We know that you poured out your spirit on the end of the ages, in the last days. And we're thankful that the end of the ages has come upon us. And we are thankful that we have the Holy Spirit. We're thankful that the Spirit continues to work even amongst us to make us more like our Savior. And we ask and pray that we would be more like our Savior. We ask and pray that we would hear the word. And as the external means goes forward, we ask and pray that it would not return void because your Spirit is working. And your Spirit is working to call forth the elect out of darkness, but also to strengthen your elect, to strengthen your people, to make us more like our Savior. So we pray that we would be strengthened with might in the inner man by your spirit, that we would not be carried about to and fro by every wind of doctrine, that we would grow in maturity in the things that you have revealed to us in the scriptures. And we're thankful that we can know you. We are thankful that this is a promise of the new covenant. And we're thankful as the word goes forth and churches are planted and sinners are saved and your elect and your people are strengthened. We're thankful that this is covenantal. This is the new covenant in action. And we are thankful that you are doing so still as you call forth your elect out of darkness and as you strengthen your people. So thank you that the kingdom is coming in today. And we ask and pray that you'd help us as we hear your word. Ask and pray that you'd help us as the word goes forth. And we pray that you'd help us by your spirit. Strengthen your saints, save sinners, and in all things, we pray that you would be glorified. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. 
Well, for years, uh, I went to a church where the word of God was not preached, and I must say I was starving myself when I was at that church. I thank the Lord for saving me at that church, and I thank the Lord for the fact that I met my wife at that church, but the reality is the word of God was not being preached. It wasn't just that the preacher was boring. Uh, it was that he hardly put any effort into understanding the word of God. In fact, he said to me one time, he said, I don't read the commentaries anymore because they just say what I was going to say anyway. So there wasn't a lot of effort put into uh, what he was doing, and it did carry over, uh, and it came out in the messages that were preached. And when I finally was fed, when I finally started attending a church where the pastor did uh, put his effort into studying the Word of God, uh, I didn't realize what I was missing. I didn't realize the, the, that I was starving and I needed to be fed. I thank the Lord that I was full and I continued to be full uh, as we continue to go through the Word of God and grow in it. And in reality, on a grander scale, that is what it was like for Israel during the time of captivity. That it was what it's like for them during the 400 years uh, between the last time God spoke to them and John the Baptist comes on the scene. We see that it was a wilderness of silence. We see that they did not have the word of God. They did not have the scriptures. Or they had certainly the, the Old Testament, but God no longer was speaking. There was this 400-year period of silence. The word was very limited under the Old Covenant in general, but it was especially limited during that intertestamental period. That's what makes Joel's prophecy so fulfilling. That's what makes Joel's promise so rewarding and so refreshing. It's going to be about a time when the knowledge of God and communion with him would extend to all sorts of people, would extend to all sorts of nations, will extend to all different types of people. And this is especially needed when those who do not have the word of God are dry. When they do not have the word of God are starving. When they do not have the word of God, they are parched. And certainly Israel, even though they had the word of God, many of them starved themselves. They did not listen to the word of God. They did not pay attention to the word of God. And so what God is going to do is he's going to uh, hand them over. He's going to hand them over to the enemy and they are not going to have the word of God anymore. And so there are a lot of sad things about the prophet Joel, but there's a lot of encouraging things as well. We know it is pre-exile. We know it is prior to the destruction in 586 that comes by way of Babylon. We know it is prior to the captivity. That's why we have these warnings about destruction. The great and terrifying day is coming. It's going to come upon the people of Israel. And so what does Joel say? What does God say through Joel? Come, repent, flee that wrath, come and turn to me. But then Joel also provides hope for refreshment. And we saw those disasters. We saw the locusts, covenant cursing. We saw the coming captivity, the covenant cursing uh, in full as God vomits them out of the land. But then we see the answer to that, beginning in Joel chapter 2, verse 18. We see the goodness of God to refresh the land. We see the goodness of God to restore the land, to give bounty to the land. And then today we're going to see the goodness of God to pour out his spirit in the uh, new age, in that messianic age. And so God is pleased to pour out his spirit. This is the promise of the pouring out of his spirit. Now, the problem, I think, is very clear. It's the people who do not have the word of God. And even worse, the people who have the word of God, but reject the word of God. 
Israel did not heed the word of God. And thus, as Amos says in Amos 8, there's going to be a famine, not of food, not of water, but of the word of God. They didn't heed the word of God, and so God now will give them a famine. It shall be a wilderness of silence. And that's what makes this prophecy so encouraging to the remnant. There's going to come a time where God is going to pour out his spirit, and his people shall know him like the prophets of old know him. And so in Joel 2, verses 28 through 32, Joel's prophecy speaks about a future time when God's spirit would be poured out on all flesh. God is going to pour out his spirit in a way that has not been seen throughout redemptive history. God is going to pour out his spirit in a way that is going to bring knowledge of God to the ends of the earth. And it's going to be a great blessing for the people of God and the people of God who are in great need. So we'll look at this prophecy of the Spirit poured out under two headings this evening. First of all, we'll see a people who have God's Spirit in verses 28 and 29, and then a people who escape God's wrath in verses 30 through 32. So a people who have God's Spirit, and then a people who escape God's wrath. So let's first look at a people who have God's Spirit in verses 28 and 29. Now, the context is important. We saw the land that is going to be refreshed. We see that this is the promise of the restoration that we see uh, in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. And then that even further points ahead to the everlasting land, the Emmanuel's land that comes in Christ Jesus and what he purchased for his people. This is all in light of Yahweh's destruction, the locusts who bring great destruction, the cloud and the devouring that comes and the different types of them that we saw. Well, God is going to bring a plenty. He's going to reverse what the swarming locust has eaten and the crawling locust and the consuming locust and the chewing locust as well. And even after that fulfillment in Ezra and Nehemiah, the reality is there is no king. There's no king on the throne. And so perhaps people were wondering, has the new covenant era arrived? And as we see, the new covenant era arrives when the spirit is poured out. It's going to happen in the afterward. It's going to happen in the later days or in the last days. And we see that in verse 28. After uh, God has promised, he's going to be their God. They're going to be his people. God is going to be in their midst. He's not going to put his people to shame. And what he's going to do is he's going to pour out the Holy Spirit. So we see in verse 28, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. The Lord is going to do it. We see that it's his initiative. And the language of pouring out highlights the fact that God is not going to be miserly about it. He's not going to hold back. He's going to pour out the Holy Spirit. He's going to pour out his spirit in those days in a way that has not been seen. He's going to provide refreshment and abundance in a way that has not been seen. Now, the redemptive historical context is important. The old covenant context is important. I do believe salvation is the same throughout the ages. I do believe the Holy Spirit was working in the hearts and lives of true believers in the Old Testament. However, it was still limited. 
However, as we read the Old Testament, we see that God had not spread his glory to the ends of the earth. He does so by way of, he he, uh, uh, limits himself to a specific people. And even too, we see the spirit with respect to creation. The spirit hovers over the face of the waters. We see how God breathes the breath of life uh, into Adam and makes him a living being. But even under the old covenant, access to God was limited. Access to God was only by way of the people of Israel. Access to God was only uh, by way of the priests. And the priests could only enter in, really. Uh, They could only enter into the Holy of Holies to enter into that temple. Not everybody could do that. Only the prophets had the word of God and then they gave it to the people. But only they knew in a way uh, that was intimate that the other people did not. We could say that the spirit wasn't poured out. The spirit was not poured out. Yes, there are times like with the judges, the spirit of God comes upon the men to help them do their task. But for all all that we see in the old covenant, it was limited. In fact, there's a prayer that Moses prays in Numbers 11. After God sets apart more elders, we see these men, Eldad and Medad, and they are prophesying. And then Joshua is kind of concerned. And then what exactly does Moses say? And I want to make sure I get it correct because I would paraphrase and probably butcher it. But Numbers 11, 29. Then Moses said to him, Are you zealous for my sake? Oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. He cries out in this way that all of the people of God would have the Holy Spirit in this way. And we see the answer to that, that answer to earlier revelation comes in later revelation in Joel's prophecy. And Joel's prophecy, spoiler alert, uh, comes uh, to fulfillment later on in later revelation in the book of Acts. So uh, later revelation reveals something about earlier revelation. We see that the promise of Joel, uh, prophecy of Joel, is to answer the prayer that Moses prayed in Numbers 11, 29. And so in this new age, the spirit is going to be poured out upon all flesh. And we see that as the new age begins to dawn with John the Baptist, who do we see operating? The Holy Spirit. When Jesus starts his earthly ministry and he enters into the synagogue and he opens the Isaiah 61 scroll, what is he saying? He's talking about how the spirit is upon me. And certainly we see that as well at his baptism. The Holy Spirit is working. And then we see after Christ engages in his work, after he dies upon Calvary's tree, after he is raised from the dead, after he ascends into heaven, the Holy Spirit is then poured out as the formation of the church begins, as the formation uh, of the church of Christ begins. Yes, there were true believers under the old covenant, but what we see in redemptive history, the unfolding of the church of Christ by way and beginning at Pentecost. So the spirit is going to be poured out on all flesh. And we see that starts at Pentecost and verses, the rest of verse 28 and verse 29 explains to us what this means. All flesh, not just Israel, but upon all flesh, the spirit shall be poured out upon all flesh. 
Now, it doesn't mean everyone is going to prophesy and everybody's going to dream dreams and everybody's going to have visions, but it means kind of like Jeremiah 31 says, they shall know God. They shall know God from the least of them to the greatest of them. Another way to summarize what we see in verses 20 and 29 is what Paul says in Galatians 3.28. In Christ Jesus, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. And so what was highlighted here is all sorts of people, all types of people, old men, young men, men servants, bond and free, they shall know God. Not just the prophets, but even these ones, the men servants and the maid servants, they shall know God. So the spirit is going to be poured out the Spirit is going to refresh, and the Spirit is going to reveal. And so those who are men servants and maidservants, all types, young and old, they shall know the mysteries of God. They shall know the mysteries of God revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see that the Word of God is going to go to all without distinction. The prophets had the Word, not men and women, not young and old, not slave and free, but in the new covenant, men and women, young and old, slave and free, they shall know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. That is what is promised in Joel 28 and 20, uh, uh, 2 verses 28 and 29. Now, as far as some of the nitty gritties, dreams, visions, those are subsets of prophecies. But when we think about prophecy in the old covenant, it's just forthtelling. Certainly foretelling is involved as well, looking ahead to the future, but prophecies always pertain to redemptive history. I want to say that again. Prophecies always pertain to redemptive history and the revelation that comes in Jesus Christ. It's always about him. It's not about specifics in our own lives. It's always about the word of God as it pertains to salvation, both in his first coming and in his second coming. And so we, under the old covenant, there were prophecies, dreams, and visions. And for a time, God did communicate in this way as well in the apostolic age. But now that we have the inscripturated word of God concerning salvation, concerning all that we need, concerning life and godliness, we have no need for the extraordinary gifts anymore. Because the extraordinary gifts, prophecy, tongues, and healings, were to confirm the preached word, were to confirm the written word. And we have it. We have the written word. We can know God as he reveals himself in the scriptures in Christ Jesus. We can know that he is our God and we are his people and he walks in the midst of us. That's the assurance of Revelation chapter 1, that God walks in the midst of his people and he works ordinarily. The Spirit works ordinarily as the word goes forth and sinners are saved. And as the word goes forth, the beautiful thing is that they, the elect, will know God, according to Jeremiah 31. According to Ezekiel 36, God shall remove the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. 
That's why it's not based on the lofty words of the preacher. It's not based upon the persuasive words of the preacher, although it's good to try and persuade. I'm trying to get better at arguments and, and trying to persuade and talk to people. But, but the main thing is that God is the one who does it. God is the one who changes hearts. God is the one who works in them. And God's people, they shall know. It doesn't mean we don't need teachers. It doesn't mean we won't get some things wrong. It doesn't mean we won't grieve the Holy Spirit. But the point is, we know God. And we have communion with God. And we shall never be put to shame. We still learn discursively when we come to the word of God. We just don't, oh, we don't just open it and go and try to have a blank mind and say, God, tell me what it says. No, we ask him what it says. We pray over these things, but then we go to a dictionary. We pray over these things. Then we go to a lexicon. We pray over these things. Then we go to the men of old. We go to commentators and see that if I thought something, did these other guys think that? And if these other guys said, uh, um, if I think something that nobody else thought, then I might have some problems and I might have to correct it. You see what I'm saying? We, are, we learn discursively. We learn by study, but we do so bathed in prayer. We do so as we pray to God and ask him for enlightening to better understand what the word of God says that we might not be carried about to and fro by every wind of doctrine. That's why Christ gives gifts to his church. Ephesians chapter four. He gives men to help the church, to equip them, uh, for, min uh, to equip them for ministry and for the building up of the church that the church might not be carried about to and fro by every wind of doctrine, that we might be strengthened with might in the inner man by the Holy Spirit. So we need the word of God. We need to grow in the word of God. We need to understand the word of God. And we need God, men whom God has set apart to do that. But thankfully as well, we can read commentaries. We have, you know, commentators at our fingertips. It's all free. I mean, not all of it's free. They cost a lot of money these days, some of the new ones. But you can get John Gill for free. You get Matthew Poole for free. Matthew Henry. Cyril of Alexandria. Old guys for free. That we can learn about God from the man of old. And I'm going to say something about that in a little bit. More about the importance of church in just, or the history of the church in just a moment. But the point is, we shall have knowledge as eminent as the prophets did. Listen to Matthew Poole. This was in part fulfilled according to the letter in the first days of the gospel. But this promise is rather of a comparative meaning. Thus, by pouring out of the Holy Spirit on your sons and your daughters, they shall have as clear and full knowledge of the deep mysteries of God's law as prophets before time had. The law and the prophets were till John. And during this time, the gifts of the Spirit were given in lesser measures. And of all men, the prophets had greatest measures of the Spirit. But in these days, the least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. When Jesus says that about John, he is speaking redemptive historically. There's, the scriptures do say that the prophets long to see what you see. And so the beautiful thing about the new covenant era is that we can know God and we do know God as he's revealed himself in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And as we see the fulfillment of 
uh, the Joel's prophecy in the book of Acts, we see not everybody has those gifts. Not everybody has the gift of prophecy or the dreaming dreams or visions. We still see it is still limited to men who have been set apart. But the point is that we have the word of God and we have Christ Jesus, our Lord. When Christ comes and when Christ assumes a human or the son assumes a human nature and we see that it, as the Lord, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry, he preaches the kingdom. Then we see the, pro, or the apostles, what do they preach? They preach Christ Jesus because he is the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets. He is the one that the church is formed by and he is the one uh, whose message forms the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see this fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. I know Acts chapter 2, Peter also quotes verses 30 and 31 and a bit of 32. But I just want to look at Acts 2 here and then we'll look at Romans 10 under our second point. But Acts chapter 2, please turn there. So we see the Lord Jesus Christ has ascended into heaven and he continues to do and to teach according to Acts chapter 1. And so we see that he has promised that the spirit is going to be poured out, this Holy Spirit promised of old, and he, uh, the, that the disciples, the apostles are going to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, that is upon all flesh. And so we see the outpouring comes, it starts at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. We see suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And we see that there are other nations there. They've all come for Pentecost. And some people don't know what's going on. They're kind of confused by what's happening. And so Peter gets up in verse 14, and he explains it. And he says in verse 16, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. It shall come to pass in the last days. You notice in Joel, it says afterward, Peter takes it and applies it to the last days. Peter highlights the fact that the last days have come in the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished and completed work. That's another reason why I say all the time that we are in the last days, but John was in the last days. We're in the last days, but Peter was in the last days because the last days just describe the times between Christ's first and second coming. So we've been in the last days for 2,000 years, and however long it takes for Christ to come back, if it's another 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000, if it's 6,000 total years, that will be the last days. And so the last days, the messianic age begins after the Lord Jesus has ascended into heaven. And as he promised that he would pour out his Holy Spirit. And in fact, we do see a precursor to this in John 20. In John 20, as Jesus has been resurrected, he commissions the apostles and he says to them, he says in John 20, 22, it says, and when he had said this, he breathed on them. Want to know something interesting? It's the same language used in Genesis 2 
If you look at the Greek translation of the Old Testament and compare it with what we see in John 20, it's the same language. Then what he's highlighting here, what is being alluded to here, is the fact that the Spirit is the agent of new creation. Just as God breathed the breath of life into Adam to make him alive in the old creation, so too does the Holy Spirit come upon the people, come upon the disciples to make them a new creation. Same language. And Jesus says to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Connecting what Jesus said in Matthew 18 with respect to the church, connecting it with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit given to the disciples uh, as a precursor, and then a fullness later comes out in Acts chapter 2. And so we see that uh, Peter quotes it verbatim to explain what is happening. It shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they shall prophesy. And so we see that he applies all of this, talks about the sun and the moon, the signs in heaven, the signs uh, in the earth, and then the call, all who call upon me, it shall come to pass, whoever calls on the name of the Lord, they shall be saved. And one thing to point out, and many writers have pointed this out, is that what we see at Pentecost is the dwelling of God coming down. The end time temple coming down. The dwelling of God by way of the spirit with his people. Dillard says the pillar and fi of fire and cloud that once dwelled inaccessible above the most holy place now dwells within people. Where once no one could approach that fire, now those in Zion can undergo the ordeal of the fiery presence of God in safety. One of the blessed things about the new covenant era that's in contrast with the old, remember in Sinai and Exodus 19, everyone's like, Moses, please, you go up. We do not want to go up to that mountain. But guess what? Under the new covenant, God comes down that we might dwell with him. The cloud comes down that we might dwell with God. God descends that we might dwell with him. And the rest of the book of Acts sees how all flesh, that prophecy of all flesh is fulfilled. And we see at important critical junctures in redemptive history, that's when tongues happened. It's actually very rare in the, Old, in the New Testament. It happens at Pentecost. I think it does happen implicitly at Samaria in Acts chapter 8. It definitely happens with the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. And it happens at the ends of the earth in Acts 19. Ex or Ephesus is the ends of the earth. And so we see the fulfillment of the Holy Spirit upon Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. For all intents and purposes, when we get to the end of the book of Acts, the gospel has gone to the ends of the earth. And they signify that the agent of new creation has come and God 
dwells with his people. God dwells with his people in Christ Jesus and the incarnation, and God dwells with his people as the Spirit is poured out. This is the blessing of the new age, that we know God by the Spirit. And the application, brethren, is know this. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are part of the new creation. You are new creation, and you have the agent of new creation who indwells you. It is the spirit age in general. That is, the gospel of God is indiscriminate. What I mean by that is God saves without distinction. Galatians 3.28 and the promise of what we see in verses 28 and 29. That was not so in the old covenant. We can know God and know him by his word and by his spirit as our minds are enlightened. As the day dawns and the morning star rises in our hearts, we can know more of our God because we have the Holy Spirit and we have the word of God. And the church really is that spirit-endowed community. What we see in John 20 connected with what we see in Matthew 18. But as well in Ephesians chapter 2, there is temple language to describe the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the church continues to be the temple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ himself is the true temple, and he is called what? The head. What is the church called? His body. And so we are the temple. That is where God dwells, where God fills all in all. Talking about the filling of his presence. That is the language that is used in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. Three, And if I may make a few comments about the importance of church history here. I do not believe the church is still being inspired. I don't believe there is new revelation. We have the revelation. We have the word of God. We have the finishing and the completion of it after the apostolic age, ending around 100 AD. But nonetheless, the church throughout the ages has been what? The spirit endowed community. And that's why it is arrogance to never consider what she has said. I'm not saying there aren't problems. I'm not saying there aren't issues. Again, she is not inspired from 200 to now. But nonetheless, she has still been given the Holy Spirit to think through and reason from the scriptures about what the Bible says. And usually it comes out by way of controversy, usually comes out by way of problems to help define and understand what the scriptures are saying. But thank the Lord for men of old. Thank the Lord for men of old who worked through various things to help us understand. Now, again, there's things we disagree with the church fathers. There's some things I disagree about with the, the Reformation church and some of the, some of the brethren there. But the point is to never consider the church, never consider history, is to do ourselves a disservice. And it's also to highlight the fact that the Spirit continues to work. The Spirit continues to work to help us understand more and more about what the Scriptures say. To be more precise, to make sure we understand it better, and to make sure that we are more Christ-like. In reality, brethren, we should know more than the Reformation Church. 
We should know more than the patristic church because we have it all at our fingertips. We have the information uh, available to us, and yet we do not know as much as we ought. It's a bit of an indictment against us, isn't it? It's a bit of a sort of a bit of a a gut, gut punch for us that we don't know as much as we should because we truly do have the word of God and we truly uh, uh, have 2,000 years of men who have uh, worked through these things. So the church is the spirit-endowed community, but also individuals have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. This is where Titus 3 comes in. This is where a lot of other places come in, but you know, Titus 3, we looked at that fairly recently. In Titus 3, it's the language of outpouring, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So we have the Holy Spirit who's been poured out. Or the language that we see in 1 Corinthians 6, what makes it so applicable to us, this idea of having the Spirit and being the temple of God, is with respect to the life we ought to live. If we are the new creation people, brethren, we ought to do new creation things. Lucy, when she was younger, we would do the catechism question, can God do all things? And she said, can do God things. And that's absolutely right. God does God things. And brethren, as the new creation people, we ought to do new creation things. And what does it mean to be a new creation person? Well, we've been regenerated. We've been given a new heart. We see that in John chapter 3 alluding to Ezekiel 36, and also as well Ezekiel 39, where God will pour out his spirit. So we are a new creation in Jesus. What is a sign of that? Baptism. Baptism is a sign of that very thing, that we've died and rised again. I'll talk about that more in just a moment. But if we are the new creation, if we are united to our Savior, if we are in him, how then ought we to live as the temple of God? Well, as the church, we ought to gather and worship and sing praises to his name and do what he asks us to do. But how ought we to live in our individual lives? Well, 1 Corinthians 6, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does, outside, does is outside the body, but he who commits immorality sins against his own body. body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God, and you are not your own. For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. If we are the new creation people, we have been forgiven in Christ Jesus, but we are to now imitate our Christ and put to death sin that we've already put to death in Christ Jesus, and we ought to resemble our Savior all the more. The point is, if we are citizens of the new creation, we ought to live like citizens of the new creation. And brethren, we have the Holy Spirit to help us. Don't forget that. Don't forget that we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit to help us, to help you in your Christian walk. If you're struggling with a specific sin or a specific issue, ask the Lord, ask him, and he will give the aid that you need because we have the Holy Spirit. Spirits, the blessing of being part of that new age and a blessing of having the agent of new creation. So that is a people who have God's spirit. Let us then look secondly at a people who escape God's wrath. So 
Spirit's been poured out. That's the promise of Joel. We see it poured out in Acts chapter 2. Then we also see why we need the Holy Spirit, because there is still a great and terrifying day that is coming. And we see that in Joel chapter 2 and Acts chapter 2 as well. But we see in verse 30, the signs and wonders that are going to happen before the terrifying day of the Lord. We see signs in general, and I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth. These signs, the language used, is to highlight the serious nature of the day of the Lord. Those things that are constant, those things when we, understand, when we think of the sun rising and the moon shining, we think that those things will always be. But as we see before that great and terrifying day, those things that are constant shall, excuse me, shall be removed. We need the Holy Spirit to escape this day. God is the one who pours out the Spirit, but God is also the one behind the day of the Lord. The coming of the day of the Lord is going to be a great day of refreshment for the people of God, but it's going to be a terrifying day of judgment for those who are not in Christ. And so we see some of these signs, signs on earth, signs in heaven. Uh, it's to evoke completeness. And so we see some of the signs in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. Now, why would he use such language? Difficult to know, but there are a couple things I think are in view. The first thing is it's a reminder of the Exodus. We do see blood in the water. We do see fire mixed with hail. We definitely see darkness in Exodus 10. And we do definitely see the pillar of smoke in Exodus 19. And so we see that it, certainly the Exodus was a day of salvation for Israel. But it was what for Egypt? It was a day of judgment. It was a day of judgment for Israel as God judges and demonstrates that there is no God like him. So there's going to be blood and fire and pillars of smoke. God is going to bring wrath on all those who are not in him, who do not call upon him. He's going to bring wrath, wrath upon the nations, which we will see in uh, Joel chapter 3. So there's a signs on the earth, but there's going to be signs in heaven. We see the sun darkened. We saw that already in Joel 2, 1 and 10. We see how that great and terrifying day when the, the Israel is taken into captivity is going to be a great unstable day. The sun shall be darkened. The moon shall uh, not give off light. It's going to be a terrifying day. The sun shall be turned into darkness. But then we see this language, the moon turned into blood. There are two things or two uh, uh, meanings it could have. The first is it could highlight the sun's obscurity, obscuring the moon, the blood moon, or it could signify, as some have said, the vapors of blood rising up and obscuring the moon. It's going to be a great day of slaughter. There's going to be great bloodshed that day, and just, uh, justly so, because God is bringing his judgment. But all these things are to warn. All these things are to cause people to stop and think about that great and terrifying day of the Lord. He says that before all these things shall happen, before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Now, as far as the context goes, we're talking about a time after the exile. And we know that the exile was a day of the Lord. We know that the locust coming was a day of the Lord. 
And so perhaps one might be asking, there's going to be another day of the Lord? What shall that be? When shall that happen? Well, I think there are two things in view. I do think with Mark 13 and the Olivet Discourse, Mark, I think, is alluding certainly to Isaiah 13 and Isaiah 34, but also here to Joel chapter 2 is the day of the Lord with respect to AD 70. Because in Mark 13, Jesus says, I'm going to tear down this temple and then he's going to raise it up in three days. And his disciples are perplexed. What do you mean you're going to tear that down? And so he goes on to talk about what's going to happen leading up to that day. And I do think that is a bit of a picture into what that final day shall be like as well, which we certainly see in Revelation chapter 6. So God is going to judge fully Old Covenant Israel in AD 70. Why? Because they crucified the Lord of glory. They rejected the Savior. And think about that day when the Savior was crucified. What happens? The sun is darkened. There is great phenomena that happen on that day because the end time judgment comes forward in Christ Jesus on that day. That is why you and I do not need to fear that day because Christ bore it upon himself already that when we go to the judgment, we are already clothed in his righteousness. And so how can any, so certainly AD 70 is in view, but also as well, that final judgment. Certainly in Acts chapter 2, you know, uh, certainly it is still future from the time of Acts chapter 2, AD 70, but also the coming day of the Lord. And Poole brings them together. Matthew Poole says this, this day was the day of Jerusalem's destruction and burning of the temple and slaughter of the Jews for their violence against and murder of the Messiah for their sins against the gospel. That this was fulfilled partly in the devastation of Jerusalem, but shall fully and finally be fulfilled in the day of judgment and at the consummation of the world. And so Acts chapter 2, certainly Peter has the end of the world in view. We see the sun and the moon and the darkening happening in Revelation chapter 6. And remember in Revelation chapter 6, we see who can stand on that day. Similar to what we saw in Joel 2.11. Who can endure the great and terrifying day of the Lord? Well, verse 32 tells us. Who can endure that day, brethren? Who can endure the great and terrifying day of the Lord? It shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And what's interesting, the word there is not the typical word for saved. It's escape. That's why I titled this or used the term escape, a people who escape God's wrath. Those who call on the name of the Lord shall escape that day. That's another reason why the new covenant is far greater than the old. Because in the old covenant, did the remnant escape that day in 586? The remnant went into captivity with the people. The remnant, as they were marching and carried away in hooks and whatnot, they had the promises of the Messiah to come. But brethren, the beautiful thing about the new covenant is if you are in Christ Jesus, we have escaped that day. We are saved from that day. We do not need to worry about that 
day. And we see very clearly a gospel call. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord, that has been key throughout this book. When they're the locusts, what are the people of God to do? Go to church, call upon God. What about when the Babylonians are coming? Go to church, call upon God. And now what can anyone do? Call upon God. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, they shall be saved. And one thing that's so interesting and blessed about Acts, I really wish that I had preached Joel before I went through Acts. And as I said, we're probably going to have, we have to go through Acts after we do Luke in the morning, right? You can't not do that. So we are going to go through it again. But the language of Peter in Acts 2, you know, after the men are cut to the heart, we see the spirit working and they're like, well, what shall we do? What does he say? Repent, be baptized, and receive the promise. What is the promise, brethren? It is the promised Holy Spirit. So he takes the, the, the redemptive historical significance of the day of Pentecost and he applies it to them. You killed the Lord of glory. You crucified him. What must you do? Repent, be baptized, and receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit works to give new hearts, but the Holy Spirit is given as a gift as well as the people of God have the Holy Spirit. And baptism is a sign of that. Baptism is a sign of our dying and rising again, of being in Christ Jesus and having the Holy Spirit, whoever calls upon his name. And that is exactly what they do. They call upon his name. They shall be saved. For it shall be in Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be escape. Same word. There shall be deliverance. It shall be in this place. Zion cannot be touched. The true Jerusalem cannot be touched. And guess where we come to, according to Hebrews 12? We don't come to Sinai, brethren, but we come to Zion. We come to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And as such, we ought to hear what our Christ says. That's why we come and worship him, because we get to come to this kingdom that can never be taken away. Clearly, the writer of the Hebrews is taking that language and applying it to the church of Christ. We come to Zion, and we come to Zion now, and we shall come to Zion in full when Christ comes again. So we come to Zion. We have deliverance in Zion. And as the Lord has said, among the survivors, that's the word, the survivors whom the Lord calls. We are Calvinists, right? We believe that God is the one who calls. We call people to call upon the name of the Lord, but we do believe that God will work in them that they will then call upon the name of the Lord. And we certainly see this in Acts as well. I mean, Acts, the whole book, is fulfilling Joel. I mean, Acts 13, 48, talking about the Gentiles, as many as were appointed to eternal life did what? They believed. As many as were chosen, they believed at that time. Or even as we see in Acts 2.39, we see all whom the Lord calls, right? We see all whom the Lord shall call in Acts 2.39. After Peter says, repent, be baptized, receive the Holy Spirit, you and your children, not 
your immediate children, not a paedo-baptist text, but pointing ahead to all who would what? Call upon the name of the Lord, for the Lord is the one who calls. The Lord is the one who saves. The Lord is the one who works. And certainly we see that in the book of Acts. Certainly we see that in the New Testament, that God calls people to believe and he will make effectual in the heart of his people to give them the gift of faith. But the reality is faith is central. And this is the importance and point of Romans chapter 10. You can turn with me to Romans chapter 10. We are coming to a close very soon here. Romans chapter 10. Paul says in Romans 10, he highlights his desire that Israel would be saved. Not that they'd have a millennial kingdom, but that they would be saved. Remember, not all Israel is Israel, right? It's based upon the promise. It's based upon God's election. And so he even talks about here the, dis the distinction or the importance of Jew and Gentile coming together. He says in verse 10, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation for the scripture says whoever believes on him will not be put to shame that is isaiah 28 but certainly it's in joel 2 as well then we see for there is no distinction between jew and greek for the same lord over all is rich to all who call upon him no distinction for whoever calls on the name of the lord shall be saved that is joel 2 the centrality of faith, whoever confesses, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, whoever looks to Christ, they shall be saved. Then he goes on to talk about the importance and centrality of preaching as God calls his people out. We see in verse 14, how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent they need to know him by the word as god works through ordinary means the new age has come in christ the new age has come in the savior the spirit has been poured out and the important question with everything that we see is have you believed have you believed upon christ jesus have you called upon his name have you looked to him by faith have you fled the wrath to come have you escaped that terrifying day by believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ? And if you do, if you have, you can be assured that you have the agent of new creation who indwells you. That is the assurance and promise that God gives. You believe upon Christ Jesus, repent, believe, and you shall receive the Holy Spirit of promise. May that give us the encouragement we need, brethren, as we walk this fallen world. The Spirit really is working. The Spirit really is saving. The Spirit really is making us Christ-like day by day. We might not always see it. We might not always feel it. It's not all the razzle-dazzle that the Pentecostals have, but nonetheless, we can be absolutely assured that the agent of new creation is working. He is working in the midst of his people, and he is working in the hearts and lives of his people to make us more Christ-like, and he is working to call forth his people out of darkness and into marvelous light. 
that is something we can be assured of. We can be assured that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, they shall be saved. Well, let us pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful for the promise of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and we're thankful for the fulfillment of that at the day of Pentecost. And we're thankful that the Spirit uh, has gone to the ends of the earth, and the Spirit now calls forth the elect who have been promised, the elect who have been chosen. And we are thankful that you do so by means, by your word that goes forth, by the preaching that happens, uh, by the sharing of the gospel with friends. And we are thankful that you are pleased to save sinners, pleased to work by your spirit uh, as the Lord calls those who are his. And we're thankful that whoever calls upon your name, they shall be saved. And we are thankful that we really have fled that great and terrifying day, that we really have escaped that great and terrifying day. Help us not to fear that day, but help us to cling to Christ Jesus and recognize that he is our all. And we are thankful that the spirit has been given, the spirit has been poured out, and we know, we know you. We know you from the least of us to the greatest of us. We know you as the one true God. And we are still getting to know you. We are still learning more of your word. We don't know your word as much as we ought. We don't have um, our, our thoughts collected as much as we should. But yet we are thankful for that assurance that we do know you. So help us to know you more. Help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to imitate our Lord Jesus Christ all the more. Help us to glorify you as uh, recognizing that our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit and help us to glorify you in body and in spirit. Help us to be thoughtful. Help us to exercise our minds for your glory. Help us to engage in spiritual thought and help us to grow in spiritual things. We also pray as well that you'd help us to grow in bodily things as well. Help us to have a sober recognition that we are body and soul and we pray that we would glorify you in that way as well. Thank you that you know our frame. Thank you that you know what we are. And thank you that you remind us of who Christ is and what he has done and remind us that we have the Holy Spirit. So help us as we go out into the world. Help us to be assured. Help us to be encouraged, knowing that you are working in our midst. So be with us by your spirit, we pray in the name of Christ.